Hey, 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 Tony Gapastone here with episode 58 of the Brave Maker podcast. We have our correspondent, Irving Ruan, with his friend and writer, Weird But Normal, her words, not mine, Mia Mercado, who is going to be sharing her journey of writing for McSweeney's and the New York Times and Hallmark. Yes, she's a Hallmark card writer. Good episode. I definitely appreciated the deep dive into her journey and her understanding of humor and how she deals with sometimes the twisted uh, underbelly of what she wants to share and censorship and being a woman in the industry. Really, really good stuff. But before you jump in, please know that the online version of our film festival is available to you, but only if you are on our email list. If you are not, go to bravemaker.com slash buzz. B-U-Z-Z, bravemaker.com slash buzz and sign up today. You'll be getting every week during Shelter in Place a plethora, you like that word, plethora of movies to screen for free. And you'll also get opportunities to meet these filmmakers, actors, and creators on our Facebook page, Brave Maker Film Fest on Facebook, and we're going to be doing weekly video chats, live streams where you can tune in, ask questions, comment after watching these filmmakers' movies. So don't hesitate. Don't wait. Get on it. So don't wait. Get on it as soon as possible. Otherwise, you're going to miss out. Bravemaker.com slash buzz. And in lieu of charging for these events, we are inviting you to consider donating to our 501c3 nonprofit because that's the only way we can do this work is through your generosity. So go to our website, bravemaker.com, and give your tax-deductible donation to support the work of our creativity. And hopefully these stories are inspiring you, helping you cope, and giving you hope that we're going to get through this and get through it together. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Irving Ron, and I am so excited about today's guest that we're interviewing for the Brave Maker Podcast. She's a very dear friend, an incredibly funny person, and just uh, pretty much a human angel, is what I'll say. Um, but her name is Mia Mercado. She is a writer, and her official bio is that uh, she is a humor writer based in Kansas City. Her work has been featured in places like The New Yorker, The New York Times, Washington Post, The Lily, New York Times Magazine's The Cut, Bustle, McSweeney's, and Hallmark Cards. Her debut collection of funny nonfiction essays, Weird But Normal, explores the contradictions of being a person sharing the awkward, uncomfortable, surprisingly ordinary parts of life. Weird But Normal comes out with Harper One on May 19th, 2020. Mia, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me, Irving. What a wonderful way to spend this quarantined day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, wonderful, I think, is definitely a great descriptor of it. I mean, world's kind of uh, crazy right now, but I'm so glad we can sit down and, and talk about good things. Um, so many things I want to talk to you about. Obviously, you have uh, your first book coming out, Weird But Normal, which I certainly just devoured, uh, you know, in the past few days. And we'll certainly get to that. But I want to start with you, certainly for our audience, uh, is that, you know, a lot of them are artists, you know, a lot of them are writers, actors, filmmakers. 
And a lot of them are, you know, hoping to get deeper into their crafts. And one thing we love to explore with people that we talk to on this podcast is, you know, from a perspective of childhood. So namely, like if you could help start anywhere in this conversation, what were some of your earliest perhaps influences that you think, whether through people or artistically that I guess shaped so much of who the writer you are, uh, you are today, basically? Yeah. Um, I feel like two things. I feel like the world's worst read writer. I My taste <laughs> is very mainstream and also not as deep as other people's. Um, and I didn't really consider comedy writing or humor writing a thing that I wanted or could do until I was in my 20s. So a lot of my, um, like, comedic influences, a lot of the people that I look up to are people that are, like, thriving and popular right now. Um, I love Megan Amram, who's written for probably every single show that everyone loves. Um, but, like, The Simpsons and The Good Place, love Samantha Irby, love um, people like Gia Tolentino, who are able to take hard, confusing, upsetting parts of culture and make it into something that you want to learn about. Um, but as far as like early influences, honestly, <laughs> I feel like the thing that I, I don't know if I had anything like as a child that was like, this is where my sense of humor comes from. This is the thing that I thought was funny. I loved Mary Kate and Ashley, like probably <laughs> too much. And only now am I realizing how much of their catalog I have like committed to memory. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I I liked I liked them. I liked just like I liked writing stories. I I had like my parents have like I don't know Tupperwares full of things that I would write that were usually just rewritten versions of other stories that existed um, <laughs> or like turning stories into plays. But like yeah, as far as like what I liked when I was a kid. I don't know how much of that carried into or informed, I mean, Freud, psychology, blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm sure everything informs <laughs> everything. But the, I feel like a lot of the things that I think are funny right now are that way because of who I am as an adult person. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely uh, relate to that. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's like one of those things you talked about, which is that there's always like this expectation that for writers, like what were your, you know, serious literary influences. And I think a lot of times too, it's like, there's so much great writing that's not considered in this classical stereotypical, you know, serious literature. So it's really refreshing to hear um, that, you know, you pulled from all of these other influences with that, like, love to explore more of kind of the family life, which obviously you covered in your book, but you know, for our audience here today, um, obviously you just adore Anna, your sister. Um, but like, what were your sibling relationships like growing up in the sense, like, did they inform, I guess, your comedic sensibilities now? Like, do you remember specific, like, were you like the funny sibling or that particular sibling? If you get what I mean. Uh, yeah. Oh, not at all. My sister is much funnier than I am. Um, <laughs> So I'm one of four kids. Uh, my younger sister, Anna, is the youngest of us. Um, and then, well, I guess I'll go in order. So my older brother, Zoe, is we're all two years apart, and my family's Catholic, so we're <laughs> four of us, because that's just how that works. Um, my older brother, <laughs> Zoe, um, is great. He has Down syndrome, which is a thing that has informed 
my entire life. Um, and his obviously, um, you know, love to make my brother's disability about me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a thing I can say because I, it's a thing that people with siblings with disabilities will get. Anyway, so it's my brother Zoe and then it's me and then I have a younger brother, Frankie, um, and then Anna, um, Anna is definitely who I'm closest to, and that is probably just because we've had a lot of this, like a lot of similar experiences growing up, um, just being two women in the Midwest, two like girls in the Midwest. Um, yeah, no, I was not the funny one in my family. I was the like serious rule follower. I wanted to be seen as responsible, and I wanted people to treat me like a small grown up. Like, I did not, I didn't try, I didn't want to be funny. I didn't think that that was, like, one, I didn't think that was a thing that I could be or a thing that was, like, useful to me, which I'm sure is rooted in a lot of fucked up stuff. Can I swear? Or should of I not course, swear? yes. Okay. I was like, wait, maybe I should. Anyway, yeah. Um, no, didn't, like, was nothing of a class clown. The idea of that, like, my in my head, I'm like, okay, a class clown means that you get in trouble a lot, and I never wanted to get in trouble. So, yeah, a lot of who I was as a kid was following rules, uh, being obedient, being nice, and my sister was definitely the one who was funny in our family and also, like, the funny one in the friend, like, in her friend group. I was just very, like, overly serious and very nervous. (laughs) That was my whole thing. Yeah, well, that's it's so fascinating to hear that because you know we've obviously hung out in real life, and I just so admire you as as a incredibly funny person, but just an amazing human in general. Like I, I'm so curious because to hear all of this is surprising to me, and that it's like almost a complete reverse, right? Because like so much of your writing, in my opinion, like you are you know breaking rules, right? You're pushing the envelope and like challenging cultural norms. So like that to me is the very antithesis of like following the rules, like. When do you feel like that mind shift really happened in your life such that like you felt more comfortable, quote unquote, breaking the rules, right? Certainly in your writing, but also in your comedy. Yeah. Um, I would say that like who I am right now as a writer was, has probably like the kind of writing I do right now, the voice that I have right now probably started like after college. Um, I studied creative writing in school, but the only two tracks, if you were doing a creative write, if you were a creative writing ma- major, were poetry or um, short fiction. And I was like, well, I don't think I want to write poetry, but I also don't really write fiction. But I guess I'll do short fiction. So I wrote a lot of like very bad short stories in college. Very a lot of very like, oh, you know, allegories for the boys who didn't like me back. A lot of this, you know, <laughs> your standard creative writing 401 stuff. Um, but yeah, the as far as like breaking rules and trying to do something that, or at least just questioning norms, I definitely didn't start doing that until I was in my 20s. There are, I am always amazed at teenagers who are like all of these teen activists who are informed and empowered enough to like start a political movement that blows my mind because I was only like I was the most important thing to myself throughout high school like (laughs) elementary school middle school like no concept of the rest of the world just up in my own shit like 
And honestly, it wasn't until I started living on my, like moved out, moved away from my family, started living on my own that I was like, oh, a lot of these things that I think are truisms about myself are not rooted in anything. Like these things that I think that I believe have nothing to do with anything. I don't think they're at the core of who I am. And uh, I mean, some of that timed out with political stuff, like, um, you know, politics. <laughs> I was going to try and talk about political stuff. And then I was like, I am <laughs> not the person. People, you can Google what was going on in 2008 and 2012. Like everybody was there, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I... I don't think I ever consciously was like, I know the rules and I'm going to break them. I think it was just like, I realized I wanted to write stuff that I wanted to read. And also I wanted to emulate stuff that I'm like, I, I like this. Why do I like this? Can I do something that's like that? Um, and the stuff that I like is very conversational. It's, um, it feels like someone is talking to you not like talking down to you or like trying to overly explain something or being overly self-serious. Um, and yeah, I think it, rather than just like, here are these uh, guidelines that I've been told to follow and how can I go against them? I think something that I think about all the time is just like, how would I actually talk about this subject to somebody? And how would I want somebody to talk about that with me? Yeah, no, I, appreciate you sharing that and I think what struck me about that particular story was that it sounded like there was really a this intellectual shock that perhaps like you face as an adult like shortly after college which is I think things that you had accepted as you know what you thought true truisms really to you know related to you like these kind of sort of became dismantled do you feel like in many ways that shift of like what you felt was so true and no longer being true did you notice uh, a big sort of seismic shift in your writing and the type of writing you were mm. doing as well like I guess to put things into concrete terms like I guess what was the kind of like voice you were deploying as a writer prior to that shift and did you notice like a sudden shift in your voice afterward if you have an example to share yeah I think that that shift probably started happening when I was working at Hallmark so after I graduated college, I worked at Hallmark Cards, um, like the greeting card company that makes cards. Um, I was a, I started as just a general greeting card editor working on the very serious Christmas cards and like very sentimental birthday cards, um, which like are all very self-serious. Like if they're taking these like very traditional things to their most traditional extreme and talking about them in like overly sentimental and hopefully meaningful ways. But while I was doing that, I was like, this is absurd. The thing I'm doing is so silly and seems like a fake job. And also it feels weird to like talk about, like so Hallmark is a huge company and it is a billion dollar company and it's an old established company. And like anything that falls into those categories, it felt like a corporation. And so like you would have very corporate meetings where people were like explaining like the and that like analyzing how things were performing and like talking about percentages and talking about like product and stock and I was like we are talking about birthday cards what are we doing <laughs> this is just silly and I and I eventually was able to move to the humor card team which like 
thankfully, I mean, in its own, in its nature, you're going to not be self-serious. And when honestly working on funny cards was the first time that I was like, Oh, I can talk about real things in a funny way. Like, like there are, uh, like lighthearted sympathy cards. Like there are lighthearted, um, cards for things like, I don't know, turning 30, which is a thing that God forbid a woman turns 30, (laughs) but, um, Yeah, I don't know. I think that was that was the first time that I was like, oh, I I don't like talking about things seriously. And if I do like that's not how people think. Like I don't I don't know if anybody actually thinks about things seriously all the time. Or maybe they do. I don't know. It just doesn't feel genuine to me. Maybe people much smarter and well well read than I am are serious all the time, but that's just not how it's like I don't talk like that. What am I doing? I I need to be working on stuff that feels true to who I am and also true to like how I communicate during these like big life events. So, so yeah, working on the humor card team at Hallmark was probably that bit, like when that shift started to happen. Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so much, uh, I think in all that, first of all, I think it's so cool. And I think for readers, um, who will be, uh, buying, you know, Mia's book and obviously reading it, um, she goes a lot into detail about that experience which is really great in, in the in her book but from that one thing I'm, I'm wondering from that is like I've heard this quote being thrown around which is that you know silliness can be a really great religion and I as you know you know we're, we're both we both write humor and I'm of the belief that it's so important to be silly and to not take things seriously right and I wonder like your experience at Hallmark, obviously, in the first phase of your career there was seeing, like, the sort of self-serious nature of it and sort of, like, you know, w- you know, turning your eye at it and be, like, wondering, what's this all about? Was your upbringing, like, you know, really silly? Like, like what was, like, the dynamic like with Anna? Like, did that bring the silliness out of you? And then, I guess, writing just became a really natural extension for you to, like, convey the silliness that you've always had as a child or uh, help us understand what that was like when you were growing up? Yeah, uh, I think within the con, like my family within the context of itself. So like my siblings and my parents, um, and I, it don't we don't feel very serious. We don't feel like I think we take things pretty lightly. Um, my like my core family sense of humor is mostly just like body humor. Like farts are very funny. Um, they will always <laughs> be funny, and they will never not be funny. And that is the hill that our entire family will die on. Um, <laughs> yeah, that we, I mean, without without telling stories that aren't mine and, like, speaking to things that are, like, probably more personal to other people in my family, I don't think we talked a lot about serious stuff. And if we did, that's not, the, that's not what sticks out. Like, I talk about it a little bit in my book, like, specifically with, like, mental health. Like, I mean, so with I I don't talk about this in my book really at all but my so my older brother has down syndrome and again <laughs> to make my brother's disability all about me but <laughs> uh that kind of informed a lot of who I am as a person and the things that I value and I don't know it's I mean it's a it's kind of a reality check of like how do you like how do you want to talk to other people? How do you want people to think of you? How do you, um, 
while my brain just emptied from my body. (laughs) Um, Just like, yeah, the way that we communicated because like we were never punching down on each other. So like there, that was never an instinct that I had. Um, And I was hyper aware of ways that people were punching down and just like saying outright terrible things. And I was like, well, that's, that feels bad, but people are saying that's funny and I I don't like that. Um, And so that's, that's a thing that's always been instilled in me. Um, I'm sure in middle school and high school and before that, I said things that adult me would be like, oh no, I'm so like, that's bad. Why did I ever say that? Why did I ever think that? Um, I'm glad there's no internet record of how stupid I was, but, um, but yeah, like my family's sense of humor, I think one informed, informed me being comfortable with things that some people aren't comfortable talking about. Like disability is not like a, a, it's not a light topic for a lot of people. And also it's, if it's not something that affects you directly, it's not a thing that a lot of people are comfortable talking about. Um, and like, again, body humor, those are like the two opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like accessibility and disability rights. And then also like poop, like that's, that's kind <laughs> of, I mean, yeah, I feel like that all of our conversations were highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow, just like all of it mixed together all of the time. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's probably influenced how how I think and then they're like how I write um, and wanting to be able to talk about both of those both of those things with like an equal playing field and not make anything feel like it's off topics. Off. Wait, is that off top? Off. Off the table. <laughs> I'm a writer. I was like, what, what am I trying to say? Man, since. The, since shelter in place has happened, my brain is just purely decorative at this point. Like, who, <laughs> <ooh>, baby? <laughs> okay. I can definitely relate. Yes, uh, decorative. I think that is a great word. Uh, so I think your uh, your membership to the Writers Club is still intact. So we'll we'll give you that one. Um, but no, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think one of the things that really stuck out at me is you know, as you're describing it, I started recalling a lot of the work you've written, certainly in the comedic realm. And, you know, I think I've read pretty much, I think most, if not all of your pieces of writing, uh, just because I just admire your writing so much. But I realized that a lot of the themes that run through the stuff you've written and you publish online, and for listeners out there, we'll certainly link to Mia's stuff uh, in the show notes. But you know, it does range in a lot of places. Like, it's really versatile to see, like, all the topics you write about. Like, I remember one of the pieces you wrote for the New York Times about, like, you know, body language and everything like that. Like, you know, obviously not really in the realm of fart jokes, but, um, you know, it's, like, a very observational and, like, humans are. And, like, that requires, in my opinion, like, a fairly astute eye to, like, the human condition and all that. And then, on the other hand, I remember you had written a really funny piece from McSweeney's about, you know, HDTV and, like, home renovation shows and getting arguments with, like the husband and everything and which is like so different um but it's like that example that's i think indicative of like how you are able to oscillate between all these different genres and i think to go into the one final direction i've noticed in a lot of your writing is like you talk about you know not punching down right but like punching up so i know that in a lot of your pieces you you know you you go out of your way i think to do you know make some really insightful commentary on like the state of patriarchy and especially like the state 
of the patriarchy in comedy, which has obviously, you know, been very lopsided for the longest time. And it's incredibly astute. And so, like, to that end, I guess when you're thinking about what humor you want to deploy, do you think about it through those sort of genre lens? Or is it just whatever you've been thinking about for the past month and you're like, I'm going to write about it? Or is there sort of like a method to the madness of the creativity that you that you got going on? Man, I wish there was a method. I wish I had some sort of like, <laughs> if I do this and then this, then I will write a piece. It is more the latter. Like I, the HGTV, like home renovation show piece came because I was getting my oil changed and sitting and waiting and they were playing um, like some HGTV show on mute with the captions running. And I was like, this is bonkers. And also it's (laughs) weird that it's like the, it is similar to sports in that it's like just a common thing that we can all talk about. It has no stakes in anything. You don't have to know anything about someone to be like tiles, right? Countertops though. Um, uh, and yeah, so it usually is things that are that I'm interested in currently and things that have happened recently. Um, I keep a note in my phone of like ideas that are usually nothing more than just like um, just like fragments of sentences that mean nothing to anybody. And if anyone saw it, they'd be like, oh, this person is something's happening like there's no through line in these conversations um and yeah I so yeah it's a lot of like what do I like what's going on in my life what am I observing um more so than like this political event just happened this current event just happened let me respond to it um I like you mentioned wanting to like like punching up and like talking um speaking to things that are in the way of like (laughs) dismantling the patriarchy and challenging racist um racist things that we all have ingrained in our head regardless of what race we are um I instead of like I'm gonna set out to write a thing specifically about the patriarchy I, I usually go at it in a way that's like okay, what's a thing that's actually happening in my life? How does that thing relate to, you know, everything else? Like, I don't I don't think any part of anyone's life exists in a vacuum. So, like, I don't know, things like racism and sexism are things that I'm not actively thinking about all the time, but they inform who I am and the choices that I do or don't make um, and the experiences I've had. So, um Like, there was a piece that I wrote for The Establishment, which no longer exists, but was a very cool um, publication. Um, And it was a brand style guide for women that played on the format of, like, ad agency brand style guides, where it's like, okay, what's the color palette? What's the mood? What's the voice? What's the slogan? And um, after many years of working in places where, like, where people are thought of as like, how do we, how do we appeal to people as this monolithic thing? And how do we tap into them at like, like tap into them, like gross words like that. Um, I was like, okay, if I actually, what are we actually saying here? And like, this is ridiculous in and of itself. I feel like there's a way I could talk about this that is saying something 
and that people will like people who have worked on that kind of stuff will be like, oh yeah, that is exactly how we talk about people. That is how we think about women. That is, and also just, I think I have a Shania Twain joke in there. You know, anytime I can make a Shania Twain joke, gotta throw that in. Hey everyone, interrupting this podcast real quick with my daughter. Hello. To introduce a new segment while we're in shelter in place called Two Minutes with Marcus. Two Minutes with Marcus. That's right. Marcus Robinson is a new partner with Brave Maker. He is a film reviewer and critic. You can find more information about his thoughts about movies at moviesmarcus.com. That's right. Moviesmarcus.com. Marcus with an M A R K U S. Dot com. He's going to be on the podcast giving two minutes of reviews and you can hear him on future podcasts as well as we'll be posting his reviews on our social media. So enjoy this two minutes with Marcus. Hi, my name is Marcus and this week I will be reviewing Uncorked. It's a new movie streaming on Netflix starring Courtney B. Vance and Mamadou Athi. It's about a young African-American man living in Memphis who has dreams of being a sommelier but his dad wants him to come take over the family restaurant. Now, the first half of this movie is pretty conventional. Um, we get the young man who wants to follow his dreams and then the disappointed father who's basically shaking his head for a majority of the movie and yada, yada, yada. We kind of see where this is going. But what writer-director Printance Penny, who's also the showrunner for HBO's Insecure, does with the second half of this movie is unexpected enough to make it more realistic, grounded, and relatable. Now, why I think Uncorked works as well as it does is its brazen unconformity. Speaking as a black man myself, I am quite aware, as we all are, that cinematically seeing a person of color training to be a sommelier or even drinking wine is a rarity. There's a sense of boldness to this rather simplistic touch, as Penny makes this statement, black people can be anything they want to be. He further highlights this by creating a bunch of side characters and settings that are completely stereotypical before introducing us to the atypical African-American character. That's why this movie works as well as it does. It quietly refuses to be boxed in. Now. If you're a wine enthusiast at all, Uncorked will speak to you without hesitation. But even if you're not, this is a well-made movie about an African-American person doing something cinematically different. So yes, more of this, please. I give Uncorked a 4 out of 5 stars. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, so I'm curious, like, from your perspective, you know, obviously there are a lot of things in what you write about that can be sensitive or, you know, can be somewhat radioactive at times. Like, how do you approach, I guess, writing topics that have that sort of, that can have that aspect of radioactivity, if you will? Like, are there certain things that you think about, like, oh, I shouldn't think about writing it this way, or, like, you take a particular tone or persona in that regard? Um... Honestly, no. I mean, aside from handling, like, I think you can talk about things gently, but also be upfront about them. Like, I, I definitely don't try to, like, self-censor. Um, just, I mean, publications will self-censor will censor as they need to. And if I make a joke that is off-color in their regards or just, like, too upfront, um, then they'll take that out. But, yeah, when I when I write stuff that's, like, 
you know, about more serious stuff like internalized misogyny and harassment and, you know, things that aren't light. Um, I mean, I keep in mind the thing that a lot of humor writers I would hope keep in mind, which is like, who who is laughing at this joke with me? Is it the people, like, who would I hope would be laughing at this joke with me? And if it's, if it's people that are in power, if it's the people who I'm trying to lambast, or if it's the people that, like, you know, it's the shitty people. I don't want the shitty people <laughs> laughing at my jokes. They don't deserve that. You don't get my funny jokes, shitty people. Um, yeah, so I don't... I, I like stuff that's able to talk about... Like, I like comedy that's able to address big, heavy, confusing things in a way that feels approachable and also makes me think about it in a new way. Um, and so that's what I try to emulate and that's what I try and stand by. Um, I've been lucky in that I don't, I haven't, nothing that I've written that I know of has like been so polarizing or so um, spicy <laughs> that I've gotten like terrible, terrible emails. I've gotten like a couple, but like, um, Thankfully, I've been pretty shielded, and I've shielded myself just from the ways that people might critique an online piece in a way that's not super informed, or that literally just goes off of what the headline says and not what the piece is about at all. So, yeah. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I certainly definitely can agree with that perspective. I think a lot of things that a lot of the things that I've noticed in your work in particular, you know, you like you talk about a lot of these sort of, you know, hot button topics, right? And certainly growing up biracial in the Midwest, you know, being a woman, dealing with a lot of these things that I think, you know, are important to write about, but I think can be hard in some ways because I think a lot of people have these kind of views. I'm curious, like, as you were thinking about your book, you know, obviously I noticed there's five major sort of sections that you positioned there. And, you know, there are a lot of essays and a lot of them about your, obviously your, your upbringing, but like, how did you go about, I guess, bracketing all these, like at least five different sections? Like, did you, did those sections emerge from like writing a lot of these essays or did you go out in the beginning saying, I want to write, or I want to think about these five sections. And I want to think about essays through the lens of those five different parts that, that you had positioned. I think it was a combination of both things. So Honestly, one of the reasons the the book goes through so many different topics is because I had the feeling that I'm sure a lot of people who are able and have the privilege to write a book feel, which is like, what if this is the only book that I write? I want to be like, make sure that it can talk about all of the things that are really important to me and all of the things that I want people to know that I care about and uh, like, you know, just putting your whole heart and soul into every single word that you write. Um, I, I manage that a little bit better than just being like, I gotta, you know, just die on the page for people to, to like people to really care about this thing. Um, but I, I, I knew that there was a lot of different things that I wanted to talk about. Like, and I wanted to, I wanted them to feel like all of these different components of everyday life. So I kind of just went through like, okay, in a day, what are, could I categorize the things that I do in a day and what kind of categories do they fall into? Um, and I had some pieces that I had already written that I was like, okay, I think they kind of, they follow this through line of um, talking about these like norms that exist in the world that are strange or talking about um, things that are seen as strange, but that everybody does. And 
so I, I, yeah, I went like kind of culled through, um, pieces that I had already written was like, okay, well this kind of talks about it. This also talks about it. Like I had a piece for the New Yorker called I'm a guy's girl that, um, is told through the voice of this <laughs> deranged guy, like just deranged character who, uh, is kind of like the Frankenstein monster of all of these, all of the stereotypical ways that women are talked about in, uh, movies and TV and media in general. Um, so yeah, when I was structuring the book, I, I tried to think of like how, how, how can I best talk about all of these very, very different things? And, um, yeah. And thankfully they all kind of fit into, into one of the categories. Some of them are definitely a little bit of a force fit, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, one of the things that I really loved in how you titled it, and there was this really cool, I think, punch at the end, was like, I think for uh, listeners out there in the book, you'll notice there's these five sections uh, are named, I think, on being human, uh, on being professional, uh, on being domestic and beautiful, which I can very much also relate to, and uh, on being yeah. in love with sometimes even both, and last but not least, on being human one last time. Like, these are really, I think, creative I think ways of I think again like to what I was saying earlier capturing so much of that I think astute observational aspect of I think in your writing like as you were thinking about this you know, did you originally imagine it to be like I guess so much about I guess all these experiences like I guess my question is when you started writing this book what expectations did you have about it that no longer actually felt true after you had finished it? Like totally like, Oh my gosh, I did not expect that. Did that, any of that happen in that experience with you? Oh, for sure. I, I mean, the thing that I mentioned earlier was like that initial feeling of, I need to say every, like, I need to make a joke about every single thing I can make a joke about. I need to talk about every single topic that I care about. And that's important to me. Um, I mean, you get to a point where you can only write so many things and only so many things will make sense in the context of a book. So um, having those categories was helpful. And I worked with my editor um, at Harper One to figure out how best to structure the book in a way that um, I could talk about all these things that I cared about, but in a way that wasn't overwhelming and had some sort of a through line. Um, yeah, the I don't know how the book process is for everybody, but the way that it worked for me was I had a, a, like a chunk of it written before I like sold the book to anybody. So I had like a couple essays that had been published other places and then also a couple personal essays that showed an example of the kind of stuff like this, the style and the tone and how I want to write. Um, but I got from like January 2019 until June 2019 to write this book which I have no idea if that's a lot of time, if that's not a lot of time. It felt like both to me. Like, it was, like, both the perfect amount of time and also the, like, procrastinator perfectionist in me is, like, let me wait till the last minute to do this, but then also it needs to be precise and exact, which, like, you know, those two things can't exist in tandem. Um, So, yeah, aside from just, like, the content, like, the things that I was able to write, um the process of it was kind of that was surprising to me I feel like nobody really talks about like I mean there's a lot of books on how to get a book published but like as far as all of the different like components of it it was 
the actual act of writing the book was not that different from writing anything else. Like it, I was just sitting in my room or at a coffee shop writing, um, which that was kind of nice and cool. And it's, it's cool to have this physical thing that I was like, Oh, I know where I wrote that piece. Like I know where I was when I like came up with that idea. Um, so yeah, I was surprised at how much of the process felt familiar and also how much of it was like, just, I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess publishing is an industry. Obviously it's going to have these, <laughs> these rules and regulations. The Sure. Yeah. Would you be willing to share, you know, from your book? I mean, obviously there's all, you know, the topics range uh, in a lot of different places. One of my favorite uh, pieces where you go into like the picking of your AOL instant messenger screen names um, that definitely hits so close to home because I just remember I went through my own iteration of screen names and like all the different things in that area. But would you be willing to share like out of all your essays, like was there a particular one that felt really hard to write and, and why was that uh, case? Yeah. Um, to go back to the screen name one, that was a last minute ad. That was one of the last pieces that I wrote. And I came up with the idea after watching the episode of Pen15, um, the show it's starring two characters named Maya and Anna who are 30-year-olds playing their 12-year-old self. Um, they have an episode where they're choosing screen names. And I immediately was like, oh, I had some bad screen names. <laughs> and I need, to, I need to just, like, purge this from my system. So that's how that came to be. Um, that was not a hard piece to write. That was very cathartic and also, like... Or just the the pool of content for the things I thought were okay to put on the internet were or so deep. Um, <laughs> the the hardest piece to write would probably have been um, depression isn't a competition, but why aren't I winning? Um, I came up with the title and then I because I was like that's kind of funny. And then at first it was going to be a completely satirical piece where. Um, I don't know, I like ran through my my depression meals of choice or I ran through like the absurdity of like antidepressant ads. And then I was like, this like this isn't how I want to talk about this. Um, I feel like I need to have myself as part of this piece. Um, I can't just separate it from myself. Like depression is such a personal thing that talking about it in a like a removed way didn't feel right in the book. Um Honestly, the hardest part of that was not really even, like, going through... It was hard to go back through just in my head, like, some of the, like, like the experiences that I talk about and the things that I was like, oh, yeah, in hindsight, <laughs> you were mad depressed, Mia, and you had no idea. And, oh, sweet baby Mia, just going through life thinking, like, oh, no, I'm just normal sad. This is normal sad. Um, like, that was hard, but not, like... It was hard in a way that, like, things that are worth it are hard, you know? Um, uh, the the reason that one was hard was just because I felt like it was necessary to have some context for, like, how was mental health talked about in my family? Um, and honestly, it really wasn't. And that obviously is a thing that has informed how I've dealt with my own mental health, how I talk about it, how I think about it, and... Um, and one of the reasons that I'm trying to talk about it more openly, just because I was like, I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had the examples that um, showed me how to be depressed <laughs> and deal with it. Um, so yeah, so talking about my family history with 
depression and like my relationship with my mom. Wow, this is a full therapy session, isn't it? Like no. my the, my relationship with my mom is kind of complicated. Um, <laughs> um, I I talk about I like sent an email to my mom asking her about her depression, which now I'm now saying that aloud sounds cuckoo to be like, oh yeah, you know how you send an email to your mom about her mental health and like her mental health history? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So my mom and I are both like processors. So like I sent her this thing, like, I want to talk about this thing. Let's talk about it on the phone, but like, this is what I want to talk about. Let's think about it. So yeah, talking to my mom about that was kind of hard just because it's a conversation we've never had. And it was the first time in the book that I was like, oh, I'm writing something hyper-personal that um, is going to be out in the world. And, and it's not only super personal to me, but it's super personal to people very close to me. And I, so I wanted to be conscious that I wasn't telling stories that weren't mine and I wasn't speaking on behalf of my mom and her experience or my sister and her experience or just my family as a whole. Um, cause like, that's not fair. And I don't, I don't know if anybody really like, obviously the book is from my perspective and I'm not the most reliable narrator all the time, but I didn't want it to feel like I was just like shitting on a past experience or like blaming or not looking at something with nuance and because it's impossible to talk about mental health without it without having nuance taken into consideration. So so that one was hard, just trying to figure out how to talk about this thing that I cared about in a way that felt true, but also um, preserved the people I love, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. 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 So the depression one, maybe (laughs) that's probably like pretty obvious that there's going to be that one. (laughs) Yeah, I I can definitely imagine why why that topic would be certainly hard and I appreciate you you know sharing that obviously like these things are are never really easy to talk about and you know one thing that I you know I think given the the background I think we both have I can certainly empathize with I think the struggle uh, certainly and not really speaking for you but speaking for myself but I think for me the struggle that I've had of talking about really anything related to mental health in my family right I think both of our sort of Asian backgrounds I mean mental health in general is really taboo, you know, in a lot of Asian cultures. And so I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to even just certainly try to uh, broach that topic, but also even writing about it and having that in, you know, a book form must, must have been difficult, I can imagine. And one thing, you know, I want to ask is for somebody like me, like I know that in my writing, I know that my past and my, my history with like mental health and certainly depression it's informed a lot of my writing, right? And I, I guess I've never fully explored it really deeply in terms of what is exact connection. But I'm wondering, like, from your perspective as a writer, you know, as a person who's, you know, written pretty deeply about these kind of things, how do you think mental health or depression throughout your life has informed, like, the nature of your writing? Like, do you feel like it's made writing more painful for you? Or in some ways, it, it like writing has been like a reprieve emotionally and spiritually from a lot of, I think, that history that you've experienced in your life with that. Yeah, I mean, I think in some part, there, there are times and places where it's cathartic to talk about a thing that is so heavy in a light way. Like, it's super fun to have a piece called Depression Isn't a Competition, But Why Aren't I Winning? Like, there is... <laughs> It's like just like a 
I don't know, you're able to exhale a little bit talking about this thing that you're like, I feel like I'm not supposed to talk about it, but I should want to talk about it and I need to talk about it, but I'm scared. And so, um, yeah, so it's definitely like there's catharsis with it, of course. Um, I think the way that it's informed how I've written is probably in more subtle ways than overt, aside from just being like, you know, when you're in that bad, bad low, and you're like, I don't want to do anything, aside from it affecting my productivity, and being like, maybe I'll just watch uh, all of Gossip Girl, a thing that I am doing right now, and is a bad idea, and I don't recommend it. Um, Yeah, I, um, similar to race, like being biracial, my dad is Filipino, my mom is white, um, and being a woman, and all of the, like, complexities of uh, being a person, um, I don't know how often those things are like right at the forefront of my head at the forefront of my head. Wow. I am a writer. The, at the forefront, the, like at the front of my brain when I'm writing, um, I feel like it's more like, what is the thing that I like? Yeah. What's the topic? What's the thing that I'm talking about? And like, yeah. How would I want to actually talk about this with somebody? Um, I think I am probably way more in my own head than anybody should be, (laughs) which I think is true of probably a lot of writers, a lot of people who do anything remotely creative, definitely a lot of people with any kind of, you know, depression, anxiety. So in some ways it's been beneficial because like, man, my brain holds on to embarrassing things, which makes for great stories and like great things to talk about. But like, is that really good for my mental health? Probably not. That all I think about is that I peed my pants in high school and somebody definitely saw and I still remember and she probably knows I peed my pants and I lied about it. Like, (laughs) it's a fun story, but like, I don't, yeah, trying to, I'm like still, I'm getting to the point where I'm trying to figure out like, how do I hold on to these things that like, it is a natural instinct for me to just like grab onto the embarrassing thing and hold tight to it. How do I do that? Cause that feels like a part of me, but how do I do that without it? You know, just destroying my brain and <laughs> like, I don't know, letting me spiral down into this, like, Oh, what if everything I do is embarrassing? Maybe I'm an embarrassing person, which like everyone is an embarrassing person. So, <laughs> so, you know, just all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think for listeners who uh, may not know this, um, I have had the enormous pleasure and honor of actually co-writing uh stuff with Mia and I think to what she just said to her point I can definitely attest to the high degree of intensity and just fidelity of the comics that she comes up with that are so embarrassing that it's almost like wow this is so funny and I can't believe this may or may not have happened who knows but it is so great and I can see it like in the writing I think that we've done and just reading your writing is a lot of it feels very confessional. It feels, I can see like how it's cathartic for you, but in many ways, right? I think a lot of the great benefits, in my opinion, of being a writer is that I think I had a friend describe to me the other day about how sometimes, you know, when she gets to read other people's writing, certainly in the comedic realm, it feels like it's a collective pants unbuckling of like, oh, wow, finally somebody talked about it in a way and finally someone just wrote about it. And now we just feel like, oh, that feeling exists. And it's great that we can air it out. And like now it's not just in the, you know, the unconscious vault of our like repressed feelings. And 
I feel like reading through a lot of the stuff you've written and stuff I've seen you write, you know, through the stuff we've written together, it's like, it feels very like, oh, wow, I'm so glad somebody was able to air it out because now I don't feel alone in it anymore. Um, I want to ask you, like, from that launch pad, like, have you had, whether it's people reading your book right now or just, like, your writing out there, have you had people, like, I guess, tell you, like, hey, Mia, like, I read this, you know, X piece you wrote and I felt a little, I guess, less alone or I felt seen. Like, what, how did you feel as a writer when you would hear responses or feedback like that um, to your writing? Oh, man. I Very few people have read my book at this point. You are among a, a select few. Um, so honestly, one, hearing people think that it's still fun, like is funny. <laughs> it's just like, oh, thank God. Because you read something a bunch of times and you're like, what if this is not funny? What if, like, what if these words don't make sense? So like, honestly, that has been like the biggest compliment that I'm like, okay, this thing that was supposed to be funny is funny. Okay. Um, man, I love the phrase, just like collective pants unbuckling. That's exactly how it feels. Or just like, I mean, you probably don't experience experience this firsthand, but like taking off your bra at the end of the day. Like it is a collective, like take your bra off and your pants, just like, let's all take a deep breath and chill out for a second. Um, I haven't, I mean... I feel like I would like really cling on to somebody that was like, <laughs> wrote me a very kind, nice thing. Um, people have written things. There've been kids that are kids, adults in college who um, have found like a random New Yorker piece and said that it was funny and asked how I, how I did it. Um, which man, I admire the shit out of that. Cause that is not a thing that I ever thought I was allowed to do or that I could do. Just like, read a thing, find the person that wrote it, and then ask them how. Um, yeah, so I haven't, yeah, I don't know if I've had a whole lot of people talking about how I unbuckled their pants, but, um, <laughs> you know, hopefully when the book comes out, we can all unbuckle our pants together. <laughs> Which could be very fun, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, um, from a personal testimonial standpoint and this is one of the things that I think I really resonate with so obviously like I am not a biracial woman who grew up in the Midwest but what I felt very less alone um, when I read your book was like sort of like I think the natural awkwardness that I think ten that tends to accompany puberty you know and just like I think for people like us like I've, I feel like I relate to really strong about like replaying stuff in my head like anxiety and like depression and mental health like these are things that I, I felt very as a first person experience and I feel like reading through your book a lot of like anxiety running through it you know certainly as a young adult but also like as a teenager right dealing with like boys like so for me, me like dealing like with girls that I had crushes on and feeling like did they ever like me back and just like overthinking it all the time and just how much that caused like large tsunamis of anxiety in my uh heart and so I felt like when reading your stories that talked about like you're growing up and the anxiety you felt like I felt very much less alone. Like I felt like, Oh, I can unbuckle my pants because like I'm mm -hmm. not alone in this experience and seeing you write it. So, um, just so obviously very funny, but like very insightfully, like it was, like it was incredibly smart. And I felt that it's very hard to make something both really funny and really smart. And so I appreciate that you did that. Um, and let's just say that, you know, I may have unbuckled my pants way too much reading your book. <laughs> so I hope it's a good time. Um, but I'm curious, like from that, you know, like as a comic writer, as someone who's 
heard from the general public about your writing, like, have you given much thought about to you, like, as the role of the comic writer in society right now, like, what do you think is really, I guess, the job of the comic writer in today's day and age, like, you know, pandemic aside, of course, but, you know, in civilization, like, what do you think, I guess, you're hoping to do with your writing in the long term, if you had sort of a pie in the sky goal? Yeah, I mean, wait, I want to go back. You said you said overthinking all the time, which should have been the title for this book, overthinking all the time. Um, yeah, I I think everyone kind of has the responsibility to just question the things that they have just taken as truth. That's a thing that I get to do a lot because I'm writing about myself um and I'm just you know in my own brain digging and digging but um I think comedy writers and writers in general have the opportunity to do that more outwardly than other people or I guess any any sort of like creative field has the opportunity to do that more directly than you know an unimportant job like a doctor or something (laughs) uh yeah I mean I don't know I don't want to like make make something be over important that like I don't want being like humor is the thing that's gonna save us all um it's not it's not the thing that's gonna you know save democracy and cure the pandemic and end everything um but I do think it's a way that we can talk about bigger scarier things um in a way that's accessible to more people and also just doesn't feel so heavy like man everything is heavy like truly everything is so heavy everything is hard and scary like there's so many things happening right now that are just like hard and heavy and just feel just like I don't know weigh you down and anytime that someone can bring levity to that while still acknowledging it and not making light of it or um, acknowledge it and have it feel true but not have I don't know not have the conversation end in crying is like man that's that's the goal that's the that's the win to be able to talk about something real um in a way that someone's like oh yeah I get that I feel that that makes me think and feel I just want to make people think and feel Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. And I think, you know, in many ways, right, like, even if it may not be, for example, like tangible, like a very unimportant job, like, you know, a doctor, um, <laughs> you know, I think people to feel or to think, I mean, it really is, uh, it really is hard, you know, and certainly to feel right? like people often say in these like really crazy dark times, like laughter is so important. And so in some ways, like may not be necessarily tangible, but you know, to make us feel something, I think it really is um, really important. And I'm curious, like, for you, aside from Gossip Girl, where else do you go for levity in your life right now? I guess, you know, since it's pretty crazy right now, but, like, I guess what have you been, I guess, consuming yourself spiritually afloat? Yeah, I have been trying to, honestly, I've been trying to limit the amount of time on I'm on Twitter. (laughs) Like, I've tried to curate my Twitter feed to be people who... Um, it's a combination of like talking about the big stuff, but also just like the just stupid jokes, just stupid, silly, inane stuff. Cause like that is what Twitter is meant to be. I won't die on that hill, but like that's what Twitter should be, just like <laughs> inane stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, I do end 
quite literally every day by watching Gossip Girl in bed. Um, it, you know, just harkens back to that simple, simple time when uh, we cared a lot about rich uh, private school kids. It, uh, <laughs> it's a the fact that this show exists and that there's like, I don't know, like six seasons with like 25 episodes each. How anybody can do anything like that's that's <laughs> insane that that got made. Um, yeah, I um, Bob's Burgers is like forever my just like candy for my brain and soul. Um, it does a good job of talking about like we'll acknowledge like silly, ridiculous things um, and acknowledge the silliness and ridiculousness of them. And also it's just funny and silly and the voice acting is phenomenal and the writing is really good um I have been following like I <laughs> I have been trying to listen to a more comedy podcasts um <laughs> does that make me sound young and important I've been listening to podcasts <laughs> and they're funny um I love <laughs> uh seek treatment it's a podcast with comedians Catherine Cohen and Pat Regan and they offer advice, kind of, and they just, I don't know, it just feels like you're listening to two friends talk about things that you want to hear friends talk about all the time. And so I, I gravitate to stuff like that. That's like talking about, like, people talking like how they talk without really censoring themselves or feeling like they're putting on for an audience. Um, and that podcast really does that. I love Megan Stalter. Um, she's a comedian and who I don't even know. There are, there are no words that could do her justice. She, she One of my favorite things she does is uh, makes cameo videos. Those are those videos that you can like pay, I don't know, like Hulk Hogan 50 bucks to say happy birthday to you. <laughs> um, but her videos are so silly. And it's also just like, the fact that she's doing it is funny. The fact that people are paying her money is funny. The thing that just like all parts of it are just so stupid and funny. And I appreciate that. I appreciate people that are doing funny things and in spaces that you're like, oh, I like, oh, you can just do that. You can just be funny and you can talk that way. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I, I also like try and limit the like, I, I would say about like half of the stuff that I watch and read and enjoy is hee hee ha ha funny stuff and then the other half is like um just everything else like I uh, Gia Tolentino's book Trick Mirror was uh really good and <laughs> that's my that's my intelligent take on it it was really good <laughs> um I yeah the things that I that I gravitate to are things that talk about big serious things in a way that is accessible and so anybody that can do that I'm like yummy yummy give me some of that <laughs> yeah no I think for sure I definitely am all on board with that and uh certainly I love Boz Burgers uh, I have to check out some of the other podcasts I haven't you know given them a listen but I think I'll have a few more pieces of content to consume after after this conversation um for the I think for listeners who may not know Mia has this really great newsletter, which we'll link in the show notes, called Cake for Breakfast. And it is very yummy. But basically, if you want more of like Mia's consumption diet, you can subscribe to this newsletter, which is so great because every week she does sort of like a recap of things she's been watching and reading and consuming. And um, if it's basically uh, uh, for people who enjoy her book or don't enjoy her book, 
but want more of Mia because the Sky <laughs> Journey is like, which I don't think will happen if you. There's gonna be no one that's not gonna enjoy your book. In my I honest, mean, honestly, what a demographic to tap into. Did you not like my book? Here's more stuff that you probably won't like. Everyone loves a good hate. I'm watching Gossip Girl. Like everybody likes ingesting the things they hate. So. If you totally. love it, if you hate it, I'm still getting paid. So. <laughs> That's a great, great policy. Um, yeah, I think with that, uh, definitely I want to be sensitive to your time. I know you're a busy person, but I was hoping, you know, for listeners out there, like, where can they find you online? And also, are there any particular projects or things that you want to plug for listeners out there? Wow. this is, <laughs> I have not been on a lot of podcasts, so this is very exciting that I get to plug. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Mia Market. Um, uh, what else? I'm on Instagram at Mia.Market. Um, an Italian, uh, yeah, an Italian food store took the Mia Market. So I had to put the little period in between the two of them. Yeah. Um, and then you can find all of the things that I've written on my website, which is MiaMercado.com, which is also where you can see more stuff about my book. There's a link to the newsletter. Um, probably pictures of my dog just <laughs> all the components of who I am um and another exciting thing I there a uh, pop-up magazine is a touring show that well it was intended to be a touring show um that was gonna travel like through New York on the, like on both coasts um and I was invited to be a part of that that is now going to be digital. So this might that might come out before this podcast episode comes out. But look up Pop Up Magazine and you can hear me talk about my time at Hallmark and also read some um, greeting cards I wish existed in the world. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. And we'll definitely have all of that in, in the show notes um, once this goes out. But yeah, that's, that's so great. Um, congratulations on all of that. And I know obviously these are crazy scary uncertain times but um mia i really enjoyed uh, talking with you i mean i always enjoy talking with you you bring so much laughter into my life and i appreciate you so much uh as a person but also just sharing so much of your process and like how you i guess view the state of the world and how you use writing as like an instrument to kind of examine and to also self-examine really so that you know for the rest of us we can uh just relax and unbuckle our pants so thank you um for feeding us such heartful fatty food so that we have to unbuckle our pants. It's very much appreciated. Love it. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for indulging me for like an hour to talk about um, my book, <laughs> which, you know, in the context of everything else, it seems silly to try and promote anything right now. But I mean, if you want something light and funny and silly, I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, it's so deep and profound and made me, I guess, feel less alone so um i think yeah we'll definitely have a link to that and mia thanks again for uh coming on the show really enjoyed talking to you and uh until next time uh brain maker we will be back with a new guest so take care and be well and be safe thanks for listening to the brave maker podcast subscribe give us a rating and share with a friend brave maker is a 501c3 non-profit organization our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Want to be social? Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bravemaker Inc. Brave stories change the world. You are the story.